everyone, and welcome to the WPA NextGen podcast series, Net Zero Carbon Westminster. I'm Caroline Haynes, WPA NextGen member and development manager at Derwent London. In this episode, we'll be focusing specifically on design and the key considerations required when designing to achieve net zero carbon. To deliver on the government's commitment for a net zero carbon economy by 2050, we need to ensure that the real estate industry pushes the boundaries and ultimately challenges the status quo on how we design and deliver new and refurbished buildings. I have with me today someone who puts sustainability at the forefront of design and at the heart of their practice. Gary Elliott has long championed reform of the built environment industry as the CEO and founder of Elliott Wood Structural Engineers. As a purpose-led organisation, the practice is committed to engineering a better society and bringing about societal and environmental reform. Gary uses his inquisitive approach to question, test and realise ambitious schemes. Relishing the challenge of complex buildings and structures, he draws on three decades of experience in engineering award-winning structures, both in the UK and overseas, to ensure that projects deliver maximum value to clients and with minimal impact on the planet. So Gary, thank you very much for joining us today. There's a huge amount that I'd love to cover with you and discuss. So just to kick it off, I'm going to dive into my first question. From your own experience, what does actually designing a net zero carbon building really mean to you and your practice at Elliott Wood? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I think to answer that, I think you have to kind of look into what does net zero carbon actually mean? I think the challenge with net zero carbon is, I suppose, partially that it kind of enables you, allows you to almost do anything and then offset it. You know, which is which I think is the worrying thing. So I think you can't really start with net zero carbon without a fundamental approach about reducing carbon throughout the whole kind of process of design. So I think that's that's the sort of the fundamental point I want to get across. I guess it's also true to say that in offsetting, you have to look at that in the round because if you're, for example, I mean, you know, a lot of people look at this and say, well, you know, let's plant some trees, let's kind of do a building, and let's you know, we've got a kind of lump of carbon, if you like, left over that we've generated, which you know is, is inevitable. As soon as you do anything, you generate carbon, and that carbon then gets offset by setting by planting a whole series of trees. When you look at the profile of the growth of a tree, it actually takes 10 years or so before a tree actually starts to sequester carbon. If you're planting thousands of trees to kind of cover carbon you generated, actually, you're not going to see any benefit from that for at least 11 years down the line. Yeah. So yeah. I think people look at net zero carbon and say, well, I'm doing a really good thing. But actually, if you're generating carbon now in the building that you're producing, actually, it's going to be a long time down the line until the carbon actually gets removed back out of the atmosphere. And I think one of the things that actually we're trying to really drive at the moment is that what we need to do is reduce carbon now. It's not about reducing carbon in 10 years' time. It's not about reducing carbon in 20 or 30 years' time. Because actually, in 20 or 30 years' time, there may well be other sort of technologies that can actually extract carbon out of the, you know, and can do it commercially, can extract carbon, uh, CO2 out of the air. And so we, we really need to kind of fundamentally approach, I think, the way that we design buildings differently now so that we reduce carbon and in, in everything that we do. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on, you know, some of the ways that we can, we can approach that. But I think it, it does need a kind of a massive, shift away from just kind of doing whatever we want and thinking we can offset it to actually you know doing better things yeah definitely I I think that's one of the kind of key issues isn't it that we're effectively designing buildings now that won't actually come to market or you know through to occupation for five maybe even ten years and actually how do we kind of have the foresight to see how those buildings are going to be used as you say what kind of technologies they're going to be it's quite a challenge really 
I think it's also, I mean, this gets into kind of what's the market going to look like in five years' time. I mean, it, you know, if I was putting my money on the table, I think I'd be looking and saying there's been a massive shift in the last year. We've been talking about this for quite a few years. And I, th- I would say that really in the last year or so, and maybe COVID has some sort of impact on that, you know, things have moved through, forward dramatically. So in five years' time, are people going to want to be buying or occupying a building that is a, a white elephant? actually has been designed with no thought about the environment and, and reducing carbon. I think that's a really interesting point is that sort of trying to look forward and say, well, actually, what will be valuable and how do we value buildings in the future? You know, are we just going to value them in, in sort of simple pounds or actually will the carbon aspects sort of have part to play in the valuation of buildings in the future? So if I was a betting man, I would say that it's going to shift much further towards that. And if we're designing for five years down the line, we need to be really seriously looking at what we're doing so that actually we are going to appeal to people who want to buy and rent uh, buildings in the future. Definitely. Just one thing I'd like to touch on is just we we talk a lot about operational and and embodied carbon in terms of delivering our kind of commitment on the net zero journey. I think one thing would be really interesting just to touch on is in terms of the design team, how how do we actually see their role in reducing embodied carbon specifically? Clearly, the kind of operational carbon is kind of key, but I think embodied carbon is a really kind of interesting one when we're actually looking at looking at designing buildings. I think that's absolutely right. I think you know, and if you look at operational carbon, um, actually with the grid decarbonising, uh, you know, actually that is a reducing. You know, it's, it's kind of on a journey, and the focus, you know, for many years has always been about operational carbon and how do we reduce you know carbon in use. Um, and actually, very little until recently has really been talked about, about the, the carbon that's um, you know, generated by the construction process um, and, and in use. Typically, those two are around about 50, you know, were, and maybe it's changing slightly, it may even be slightly increasing from the embodied carbon perspective, but they were around about 50-50 in terms of the amount of carbon that's kind of generated in the building during its lifetime. And, uh, and But I think probably with the operational carbon reducing, that means that the embodied carbon is increasing as a kind of percentage of that which means that we need to look at it you know, much more closely than, than we have been doing before. You know, and I think there's a sort of tendency to kind of jump for uh, the obvious solution, which is to try and sort of well, use better materials, you know, use materials that have um, less embodied carbon. But I think, you know, and, and timber is an obvious you know, solution, and I think there's obviously a lot of noise about timber at the moment. And, you know, indeed, timber is a better material in terms of its embodied carbon. But I think it's, it's also true to say that it's actually better to build nothing than it is to build in timber. So, you know, people have to understand that, you know, building in timber still generates carbon. So, you know, fundamentally, you've still got to get that problem. Yes, it's better, but it's still not, um, you know, the kind of the solution because we're still generating carbon. So I think, you know, one of the things that we've been doing a lot of work around is, is reuse. And I know there's a lot of talk about kind of you know, reusing existing buildings. So looking very closely about, uh, you know, the existing stock and accepting that some of that stock is not good enough, uh, you know, to kind of move forward with, you know, a lot of the buildings that were built and a lot of buildings I'm sure that you've got, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, just were built with very close column grids and, and sort of very poor from ceiling lines, things that actually are kind of important in, in, in sort of modern, um, particularly modern commercial buildings. So, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of how we, you know, we, we, take, we take that uh, and, and, and use you know, use buildings where we can, but also look very closely at the materials that sit within our buildings. You know, there is a monstrous amount of materials that sit within our buildings that at the moment kind of get uh, largely removed and recycled, downcycled. And so, you know, the drive, I think, has to be to reuse those materials. And by reusing those materials, and yes, there are challenges beyond that. We know, we know that's the case. But, you know, using 
reusing those materials massively reduces the amount of embodied carbon because of course the, the product, the extraction and the product process has already taken place so that carbon already exists. But in terms of taking those materials and then reusing them, um, that is hugely beneficial um, in terms of uh, the amount of carbon you're generating on buildings. And completely certain we can go into lots of detail about well, what are the challenges and, and there's always blockers you know there's always going to be problems with these things yes we know insurance is a is an issue yes we know that you know how do you recertify you know where is the second hand market all those kinds of issues but you know in my view you have to we have to overcome as an industry uh, we have to overcome those issues so that you know when we're taking materials out of buildings we take them out whole and we reuse them at their highest level rather than just um down downsizing them there's, there's, there's bound to be ways of, of doing that. You know, it may need to have some kind of government intervention, a bit like you know, sort of going from landfill into into recycling, which kind of shifted the industry massively. Um, you know, maybe there has to be something like that, or, or better still, some kind of carrot that kind of makes it worthwhile people wanting to reuse those materials so they can put them into new buildings. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think, like you say, key to this is actually looking at kind of a starting point. How can you how can you work with the existing building without demolishing it? How can you, as you say, work with the existing materials and look to reuse them is really key to that. But I think it does certainly feel like we've still got a way to go with, you know. Oh, long, long, long way to go. I mean, the you know, the, the secondhand market, certainly for sort of structural materials, is non-existent mm. at the moment. And it's something that we're banging the drum about. <laughs> to try and to try and find a way um, of, of kind of creating a proper second-hand market. That let's say we, you know, we've been involved with a, a significant piece of research um, around that to sort of try and address some of the key issues. One of them being, for example, that you don't really know actually what's inside most of your buildings or, or you know, existing buildings. Actually, there's no record. Um, you know, going forward, you know, the plan is that um, you'll obviously have uh, you know record of the materials that go into buildings. There'll be material passports. That demonstrate the materials that go into buildings. So in the future, it should be much easier to dismantle buildings um, and and know kind of you know the, the properties of the materials that are in there. Um, at the moment, of course, you're dealing with a stock where most of the time you don't know what's in there. So it's addressing that at the beginning. You kind of almost need to know that right at the very early stages of the project to then be able to plan about how you might reuse. Whether you're reusing those, yeah, you know, you're just leaving them in place in an existing building. Whether you're reusing those materials. You're actually moving them out of their current position, but reusing them inside that building in some way. Um, and we've got a number of examples where we've kind of done that. Um, or whether indeed you're taking those materials out of the building um, and then using them somewhere else. So I think, you know, those are those are the kind of the moves. And it, as I said, you know, the, there's, there's clear blockers um, that, that <clears throat> can't prevent that from happening at the moment. But, you know, we've got to overcome those things. And, you know, in time, and I honestly believe that in five years' time, it will become the norm. When we're looking at existing buildings, the starting point, as I said, is, is understanding what's inside it so that we can then plan um, to, you know, what we can do with those materials, whether we keep them in situ. And, you know, whether we keep them in situ is fundamentally dependent on whether the existing building works and whether we can, you know, get that existing building to work, you know, with, with minimal numbers of alterations. Um, yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's also just looking with a bigger, it's just looking with a kind of a, a bigger overview of kind of what you're doing right at the, you know almost kind of before you uh push the button on stage one it's mm -hmm. kind of almost saying actually what are we trying to achieve here you know and can we achieve things i mean we've talked about this you know creating basements you know i mean how many how many projects do you know where uh you know a sort of massive two-story basement has been put in and 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 sort of one whole floor extra has been required to um to allow for cycles you know for, for bikes 
And you kind of think, this is absolutely nuts. And you actually go into the building and there's two, two bicycles in there. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of massive void. Nothing can't be used for anything else. Yeah. You know, these kind of things are sort of fundamental questions that we have to start you know, pushing back. You know, you've got government saying they want us to be more sustainable, but then in the same in the same sort of breath almost saying, but you've got to kind of create these. Now, I'm, all for, I'm, a, I'm a keen cyclist. You know, I, I enjoy cycling. And I think it's really great that we have cycling facilities. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have cycling facilities. But surely they've got to be, it's got to be kind of fit for purpose. You know, you've got to have something that is actually effective and makes sense. And if you actually do that comparison between the amount of embodied carbon that kind of goes into um, uh, to create the buildings that kind of occupy or create that space that you, you know, that, that's kind of currently required for, uh, for bikes, and you compare that to the amount of carbon saved for the process, I mean, I suspect that, that there's no comparison. You know, there'd be far more carbon going into the basement and the excavation of that. So I, so I think you know, we, we have to take a big, broad vision. I think, you know, and also I can talk, sorry, I can talk for ages about this, but, you know, also just Great. looking at load, loadings on buildings, you know, so, you know, we're designing buildings. Um, and again, I know there's a lot of talk about this going on at the moment. It's absolutely true, you know, designing buildings for three and a half kilometers per meter squared, you know, actually on, on a modern day office where, you know, you've got um, a person sitting, probably four people per bay or something with a laptop and, and not much else. It's difficult to see how you can achieve, you know, one to one and a half kilometers per meter squared, you know, so... You're designing for two or three times the amount and, and grids as well, you know, so you're designing for 15 metre grids or 13 metre grids. Um, do you really need to have a 13 or 15 metre grid? You know, we actually we've done a scheme recently where we've um, we've shown that something like a 40 percent saving in the amount of steel and therefore kind of an equivalent amount in the, in the sort of carbon reduction. By changing the grid from 13 metres down to uh, it was, uh, nine metres, a nine metre by seven and a half metre grid. You know, so that's a massive reduction just for a column. <laughs> yeah. So so I so I think that you know we really have to question a lot of the preconceived ideas that we've had in the past about how we design buildings to become so that our buildings become much, much, much more efficient and much more appropriate for the kind of loadings that they and perhaps you have to kind of design in some flexibility into those buildings so that actually if you have certain areas where you want to have greater loadings, if there's an area, for example, where there's an expectation of having sort of, you know, an assembly of people or then you design those areas locally for those increased loads, you know, or you allow it to be enhanced in a very easy way in the future so that you can, you know, you've got the flexibility of being able to improve those areas if you need to. But to design the whole building to allow it to do everything is kind of nuts in a way. I think flexibility, as you say, is absolutely key when we're looking to design buildings and design them efficiently. I think that's a really good point. And just touching on, I suppose, what, you know, points we've just covered, how important is the client brief? And as you kind of mentioned from state, you know, looking at this from stage one, so how crucial is the client brief? And then not only that, but obviously collaboration between the various design disciplines and then also kind of filtering down to the supply chain and the kind of supply chain's involvement as well and kind of buy in into this. It's an absolute no-brainer. I mean, it all starts from the client. It has to, you know, ultimately. The, the aspiration has to be driven by the client. And I think then it's a question of, you know, um, challenging, I think. So, you know, actually, I think what you need is a design team who are going to challenge the brief and, and maybe push it further, you know. So, yeah, you know, things like, things like loadings, you know, things like grids, I think are 
uh, sort of common from a structural engineering perspective are sort of common and there's lots of other areas that you know we can tackle but th those are you know absolutely key areas where i think you know there's definitely room for significant challenge and you know whether we you know, and i think if, if you if you if you kind of look at it, a lot of this comes from i suppose it's just preconceived requirements almost and saying well that's that's what the, the sort of the market requires so that's what you've got to design for when you when you roll on five years as we talked about before Will anybody thank us for designing something that's three, you know, carrying three times the amount of load that it, it needed to? Having said that, there's also the kind of the flip of that, which you talked about flexibility. It's kind of, well, in some point in the future, you don't want to design a building that's got so little load capacity in it that it can't be used for other uses. So there has to be a kind of a, a balancing act there. And, and I think this is the this is the challenge at the moment, is it's trying to create you know, buildings that are really efficient, but if you build them, you know, so specifically for one particular typology, it, it may mean that actually it's not suitable for, for another in the future. But I would then sort of counter that argument again by saying, actually, it comes back to if we really want to kind of be, what we really need to be doing is reducing embodied carbon now. You know, from our side, it's about embodied carbon. It's reducing that now. And actually, you know, maybe it's a less of a problem in 20 years' time if we have to go back and put some strengthening, you know, for example, into these buildings. So it is, there's so many, I mean, there's so many moving parts, you know, and, and I think it's it's kind of taking clients kind of through that journey of, uh, and, you know, and there's never going to be a kind of an absolutely perfect outcome, you know, because there are conflicting requirements, uh, you know, within those. Um, but it's trying to find, I suppose, a a point at which kind of you've dealt with as many of those as you can, reasonably can, and prove through that process, through testing all the way through, actually, that you are minimising the amount of embodied carbon. And I think, you know, measuring measuring embodied carbon itself is, is of no use to anybody. Embod measuring embodied carbon and then using that to inform designs, better designs to reduce carbon is absolutely totally valuable. And so, you know, I think, you know, that's something that happens and should happen sort of very early on in the process you know, it's not about counting how much carbon you've got in the building right at the end. It's actually about making more informed design, design decisions right at the kind of the very early part of the um, process. Um, and then helping clients to kind of make informed choices through that through that kind of journey. Yeah, um, no, definitely. I think the key, as you said, is about that challenge process sort of at the start of the at the start of the journey and the whole design team being part of that and actually having debates and challenging various design decisions to make sure they're the right one for the project and to deliver on the net zero carbon piece. It is, and it's questioning everything, isn't it? It's, it's also sort of questioning, you know, what, what is the future? What's the, what's the technology going to look like in the future um, in London, for example, you know, where you've got the likelihood probably over the next five or 10 years, you know, the amount of pollution that's going to be happening in, in London city centre and other city centres is probably going to minimise. Um, you know, do we therefore need as much plant, you know, that goes into building? Do we need to therefore build such big basements to, you know, and therefore does that have an impact? And, and you know, who who makes the decision not to do that at this point? Um, it's obviously a brave decision to kind of make those kind of, but they, you know, they are, the, they, those are the kind of the big bold moves that, that actually make a really significant difference, you know. And I think it's really testing those those issues right at the beginning of the process, where very often I think it just goes through the motions a bit. It tends to kind of go, yeah, well, we've got all this plant stick in there, and therefore we've got to put a big basement. And actually, the basement's got to be five and a half meters deep because we've got the kit. That, you know, it, it's all those it's all those discussions which always happen on every project. And I'm not sure actually we all perhaps step back from that and kind of go, okay, so what's it going to look like in five years or 10 years? And we're designing a building, hopefully, for 50 years. You know, so, so 
do we do we absolutely need to be doing these things? And I think that's where it, it kind of needs to start. Yeah, definitely. Gary, we've touched obviously a bit on the challenges around material reuse, et cetera. But in terms of, I suppose, some of the other key design decisions that we look at through the process, what other challenges are there? So I'm thinking, for example, we say CLT is a lot more sustainable than concrete. Well, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't all design, all buildings be designed using CLT then? Why is concrete still being specified? Yeah, I think, um, oh, I mean, again, this is a sort of a kind of a really big area, I suppose. Um, I mean, obviously, CLT is is a relatively, to the UK, so it's still a relatively new product. You know, the construction industry is very slow to change. You know, it's very risk averse. And of course, the natural thing with timber is that, it, of course, you know, it burns. You know, it's um, it's combustible. And uh, and therefore, you you get challenges, um, you know, with the timber building, whether that's residential or commercial or any other. You, you get challenges that you don't necessarily face with a non-combustible building. That's a particular issue, as well as, of course, you know, the issue of, or timber, timber rots as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, steel, steel corrodes and, and concrete will break down, obviously, over, over a period of time. So all materials have to be kind of maintained. But I think you know, because timber's new it, and, and probably less understood within the marketplace and the challenges around fire, clearly it's it's looked at, I think, in a slightly kind of uh, slightly nervous way. I mean, having said that, I think there's been huge advances over the last um, you know 12 months, for example, in terms of going through the, the process that we've been through this ourselves, you know, to demonstrate that actually you can design a building with, with exposed timber that can comply and will get kind of sign off from building control So and, and the fire brigade. So, so it is possible. One of the other sort of problems with CLT, the way, the way that um, carbon tools operate at the moment is that they, they start at sort of point zero, which I think is the right way, actually. So they start at sort of point zero. So when you specify a piece of timber versus a piece of concrete it starts at point zero and you look at the embodied carbon that's um, sort of going forward from that point you know the real the real benefit with timber longer term as i mentioned earlier on is is the sequestration you know whilst the benefits of timber sort of if you look at it right from point zero it's still beneficial generally kind of over concrete and, and steel but the, the real benefits come over a period of time so if you look kind of you know post 10 years up to you know roughly 50 years where the timbers sorry, the, t- the trees are effectively kind of replacing the timber that you've used. You're taking that sequestration sort of into the future. So when you start to look at the, the comparable of the embodied carbon of a sequestered piece of timber versus concrete, the story is much, much more convincing in terms of using timber. And I think there's some confusion around that because, you know, when you actually look at a, a sort of the comparison right at the beginning of, of the sort of, you know, you're just comparing, you know, the, the point zero onwards. And, and that's perhaps a, perhaps a slightly unfair way of kind of looking at it because there will be benefits in, in sort of, you know, beyond 10 years. Mm. Um, but I think, I think the, the, the biggest issue really is just around the uncertainty, I suppose, and the, and the kind of, of, of just having a, new, a newer product that's um, less familiar, you know, the sort of the, the hassle factor of, yeah. uh, of kind of why, why, wouldn't we, why wouldn't we just do it in concrete because that's easy and we know it. There's also, I think, a lot of a lot of emphasis has been put on on concrete and and using uh, cement replacements, and arguably that that does help if you you know if you look at your project and you you use some form of cement replacement, you are reducing the cement content, and the cement is the really bad part of, of concrete. The real problem is that it, so whilst it might work on a kind of an individual project basis, there's there's only and it's actually a diminishing amount of uh, GGBS and PFA um, in which are the cement replacements. There's a diminishing amount, and there's only about enough to cater for about 17% of the of the world's uh, concrete production. 
So, so if you're putting GGBS into your building, for example, somebody else can't. So it's not a world solution. And I think, you know, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting for a minute that you shouldn't be doing it because it's clearly, you know, better to be using GGBS than not using GGBS, but it's not a world solution. You know, so, so again, it comes back to really ultimately looking fundamentally at reducing the amount of materials that we're using, new materials, and trying to reuse um, or reduce, you know, the scope of what we're doing. So, you know, obviously, as I said, you know, putting a big basement in with loads of concrete and, you know, extracting loads of material that has to be transported and put, potentially put into landfill is, is something that is very damaging. You can't really get around the fact that ultimately that is uh, something that needs to be looked at in detail to see whether it's absolutely necessary. You know, if it is necessary, it's absolutely essential, then, of course, you still have to do it, but it just needs to be thoroughly tested. Yeah, I think it's it's really being aware and completely informed to the impact of all these decisions that get made exactly in right. the process. But, but it's also it's also not just believing, you know. So there's a, there's a lot of greenwash around, you know, and without wishing to be too controversial, but there is, you know. And I think yeah. there's a lot of genuine misunderstandings, and uh, you know, and I'm sure that uh, I have similar, you know, issues of things that I think are real and actually probably aren't when you actually delve down to it. There's always sort of an example I think of the, the Land Rover and the electric car. Um, and you kind of think, well, obviously the electric car, you know, is kind of far more sustainable because it's electric and therefore it's not producing, you know, but actually when you look at the whole life cycle of that and you look at, um, you know, the sort of amount of embodied carbon, which is never really talked about in cars, for example, you know, actually you may well find that um, you know, the, uh, the Land Rover is actually better. <laughs> so, so, you know, so I, so I think, you know, you, you've got to drill down into the detail and try and get, uh, you know, kind of a scientific approach to it, uh, which is, which is, works the whole picture rather than just a sort of convenience. And I'm, and I'm sorry if this yeah. sounds, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a tree hugger. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but it actually is true, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's all very well saying, well, aren't we good because we're doing, we're using GPS. And actually it's not good. It's better than not doing it. But it's not good, you know, and I think, you know, that's the, those are the key questions, which is sort of, you know, nicely kind of brings us back to the conversation we had right at the beginning about net zero carbon. You know, net zero carbon is a great, I'm not, I'm not knocking it at all, it's a great target, we should be doing it, but it's got to be in line with fundamentally thinking about how we can reduce embodied carbon from our perspective and obviously occupational and operational carbon. But from our perspective, it's about how, how can we be much more efficient with the materials we use, you know, and how can we reuse uh, much more than we, we have done historically. Yeah, I think that really is the key point to it, really, Gary, isn't it? I just wanted to touch briefly on uh, the heritage context of Westminster specifically, given you know, the conservation areas, the numbers of listed buildings, and just in terms of what, what are the sort of opportunities in terms of refurbishing, developing within that heritage context to deliver the net zero carbon? We've obviously touched, I suppose, upon the trying to retain structures, which obviously you need to do within, within the heritage context, but presumably there's quite huge opportunities there. I think, I think you've just hit the nail on the head, to be honest. I mean, on, on heritage buildings, fundamentally, I mean, obviously, in fact, we are working on lots of heritage buildings in Westminster, um, some very large ones as well. You know, fundamentally, you are reusing an existing building that very often actually is, is you know, becoming derelict or, or certainly sort of is, is not loved anymore. So you're actually kind of revitalising and bringing your building, you know, perhaps back into a, a, new, a new use, which I think is a very valuable thing. But fundamentally, you know, the starting point is that you're not demolishing. So you are reusing. And I think you know, that, that has got to be the kind of the real driver um, with this is, again, you know, and the approach has to be to minimise the impact on those buildings. And, 
you know, and I and I have to say that you know we are we are doing um, some some very large projects where we have arguably not minimised <laughs> the the structural works. We put some big basements in underneath existing yeah. buildings, um, but those are for good reasons because actually to get those buildings back into operation, those things needed to happen to allow the building to be operational for the new years. And I'm, I'm, in the particular cases I'm thinking of is kind of conversions to hotels, for example, where you know we've we've done a number of um, of kind of quite major schemes and conversions of existing buildings listed grade one, grade two star you know, buildings. But, but we have done some fairly major interventions to allow those buildings to be, um, you know, to be usable in the future. And I think that's a reasonable argument, but it still doesn't change the sort of the fundamental approach, which is how can we do this with, you know, by doing the minimal amount? And, and I kind of realised that I'm shooting myself in the foot as a structural engineer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, is, it is a sort of dilemma almost. You kind of have to kind of grapple with which yeah. is, you know, our, our job as a future is to kind of, uh, in a sense, is to kind of almost, I've heard M&E engineers saying this as well, actually, their job is to kind of minimise the amount of m and that goes to the building. And actually, ours should be the, to minimise the amount of structure. And to do that, you actually have to think harder and longer about what you're doing rather than just do the sort of, you know, put some beams and columns in because that's that's the easy way of doing it. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think a more intelligent approach and one that that, that sort of, you know, challenges and questions what we're doing and why we're doing it and and looking forward into the future and bringing that back to now i, I think are the the real messages um but i, look, I, th- I think there's you know huge potential for bringing it back and you look at the character of some of the buildings that we're working on and you know bringing those back to life is is just amazing and and, and allowing people to see that as well i mean we're, we're working on the old office at the moment which um, i know a few of you sort of been around to um to, to see but you know it, it is it is an incredible building with incredible history and you know a lot of that has been preserved. And whilst there are areas, obviously, where we've had to do some kind of quite major interventions, the spirit of the original building has absolutely been maintained. And that was exceptional. That was a requirement, clearly, from from uh, from Westminster. Mm. Um, so I personally love working for this department because I I think that you know actually you have the ability to take something that is unloved and and kind of as mm-hmm. very often sort of you know falling into disrepair yeah. and bring it back into something actually whilst maintaining the vast majority of the existing building which is a big tick from from a sort of carbon perspective and then just trying to sort of minimize the interventions that you you do you know doing it in a very intelligent way yeah definitely i think there's been perhaps slightly incorrect perception that you know heritage buildings are not necessarily as sustainable they can't be as sustainable as brand new ones and that's simply i think just not the case it mixes up. That's the trouble. Is it? You know, there's always a, there's always a discussion, isn't there, about operational cost? Where the argument is, well, if you put if you build a new building, you can make it highly insulated, highly efficient facade, and therefore, um, you know, really, really kind of effective in terms of the operational carbon. If you take an existing building, it's got big, thick brick walls. There, you know, they're big sort of as uh, this sort of you know big lump of kind of thermal mass that just draws all the heat out of the building or, or needs kind of incredible cooling. You know, and, and clearly that is true you know, from an operational carbon. I'm sure that a new building has a, has a sort of better performance perspective, but you can't look at it in isolation. You have to look at it in the whole as a whole life cycle process and look at the embodied carbon aspects of that and then make a decision based on those. And actually, you know, we're doing plenty of heritage buildings actually where insulation is being put in very sensitively, is being put into the outside walls to improve them on the understanding that actually, you know, they are just brick and they're, they're not going to give you any insulation value. So, you know, accepting that you can do that in a sensitive way most of the time, if you think about it. Again, it needs care and it needs thought and it needs a kind of an approach. It needs lots of discussions with 
with um, you know heritage uh, heritage England and, and the like. So it needs a whole approach yeah. rather than just looking at it in isolation, saying well it's got a rubbish. It's got a very poor skin to the building. It's going to be sort of leaking all over the place. Therefore, we knock the building down and start again. You know, that, exactly. that kind of approach is just far too, it's far too simplistic. Exactly, exactly, definitely. So finally, I just wanted to conclude just by, I suppose, asking you to just pick out kind of one key piece of advice or recommendation that you sort of see as crucial when considering design in the net zero carbon context. I think we've obviously covered a huge amount of topics, but if you could pick sort of one one key thing, what would it be? It's probably already in the in the in the sort of conversation we've had, but I think it's it probably is just thinking fundamentally about reducing the materials that we use, the new materials that we use. That is the biggest issue we face. It's the, it's the taking of it's the extraction of materials. It's the kind of using materials and the throwing them away. That linear approach has yeah. got to shift, you know. And I think, uh, therefore, I suppose my overriding concern or desire, I suppose, whatever it is, is that going forward, we think much, much more about, you know, the, the, what's inside our buildings. How can we, uh, how can we reuse those? Whether it's in situ, whether it's you know in a different place on that site, or whether it's externally on another site. How do we use that? How do we create a marketplace that really starts to address that issue? How does the how do the economics work? Because we know that the economics is going to be very challenging in the beginning. It's more expensive, clearly, to take a beam out whole than it is to just chop it up and stick it into a bin. So, you know, we know that there's challenges, there's financial challenges, and there's and there's a lots of you know sort of mental blockers of people going, well, you know, we just don't do it like that. You know, we've we've done it like this for the last hundred years. Why would we change? And I think it's those kinds of things that some mindsets, I think, of, of the kind of the industry that we're trying to shift. You know, and that's it's great why, why it's great to be able to sort of talk on things like this because you know that's what we are trying to do as a business is trying to sort of shift the the status quo of well let's just take the easy option, you know, which is I think what we're yeah we're trying not to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Great. Well Gary, thank you uh, very much for joining us today. I think we could go on talking, talking for hours around it. Yeah, I, I talk, I talk um, a lot. Yeah. You're incredibly passionate about it, which is great. So thank you. And I'd also like to thank the WPA Next Gen sponsors here at GNT for sponsoring this talk. So thank you everyone for listening and thanks again, Gary. Mm-hmm.